You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, welcome everybody to our, Jared, our final episode of season one of The Bible for Normal People podcast. I thought this day would never come. Yeah, no. You know what, Jared? The thing is, people said we'd never make it. They, they did. They, they said. Were. They said you you can't do this. You're going to be horrible at it. You're no good. And I said, shut that, up, mom. That was just your family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. we, we had the same joke. <laughs> That's awesome. The thing is that my mom has been dead for several years. But all kidding aside, she would have found that to be very funny. That's great. Good old mom. Yeah. I have my mom's sense of humor just much more twisted. So and unhealthy. Today, we thought we would do a bit of a recap, but really answering because we we've noticed what we've said all throughout this podcast. The question that keeps coming back, or the two questions, are: What is the Bible, and what do we do with it? And those questions never get old. No, for me, they don't get old for you, and they don't get old for people that we engage all the time. Whether it's on the, you know, the, the on my blog, or just when we go out speaking, or certainly getting feedback from the podcast, people, you know, they want to keep asking that kind of question. It means a lot to them, but it's hard to know what to do with it sometimes. So it's a question that keeps on giving, I think. Yeah. And so today let's talk for about a half hour or maybe a little more and just see if we can come any closer to the answers to those questions and maybe try to incorporate some of the things we've learned over this season. Yeah, because we had some themes that came through, I think, this season with you know, a, a pretty wide variety of guests, I would say. Wouldn't you say, Jared? I, yeah, I think, I mean, wide variety within the niche of a Bible podcast. But True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, Jared, <laughs> just killed the whole thing here. Um, yeah, true. But even so, within that, a pretty broad... We had people who thought differently about stuff. We'd, yeah, we did. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. So why don't we jump into that? Why don't you just go ahead and, you know, in, in one sentence, why don't you answer us uh, the question, what is the Bible? Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. But, you know, what, what is the Bible? I, I appreciate a lot of our guests coming through and answering that question in their own way. And, you know, the, the one, one that stands out for me, one episode, and I'm, I'm not saying this is the best, but this is where I am with my brain and where the kinds of things I'm listening to now was the episode with Ben Summer and uh, talking about, uh, this was, you know, back, I think, in May or something, but uh, talking about the nature of revelation and authority and inspiration in Judaism. And, how different that is from how most Christians think about it, at least those Christians who think about things like inspiration and authority and revelation. And I just found that to be very freeing that, uh, you know, the Bible itself is so diverse, it is not itself the revelation, but it's an interpretation of the revelation. That yeah. is something that helps me understand what is the Bible. And when when... You can maybe, I'm just trying to, to remember that, but if I remember too, it was for him, you know, what is, what would we say is the revelation? Is it an experience with God? And then the Bible is sort of a, an attempt to translate that into words? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's an experience of God, maybe even an intuitive experience of God that you can't deny this encounter with the Almighty with the Creator, but that encounter does not give you a rule book. It gives you something that you're sort of left to be 
a uh, let's say a co-creator of scripture so to speak that might not be the best way of putting it but humans are certainly obviously involved in the production of the bible and it's sort of like left to the the israelites of old to put down into words their experience of god that let's say is initiated by god but it's still their experience of god so it's top down and bottom up at the same time and i find that very I find that very Christian, if I may put it that way, because, you know, we've got this whole incarnation business that we deal with that is top down, but bottom up as well. And I I find that a very realistic way of thinking about the Bible that isn't embarrassed by the, what are normally thought of as difficulties or problems with the Bible, like the Bible's diversity and its contradictions and its theological back and forth, even debate within its pages. And I, Again, I just, that's the kind of thing that I wish I had been taught from the very beginning to think, you know, that way about the Bible. Yeah, it starts to get, when we think about that, I can just see a lot of people getting really nervous about that. And that makes me think of, I was actually on a podcast recently, a different podcast, and and we ended up talking about that's like committing adultery. I, I knew it. I knew it. As soon as I said it, I podcast. thought, man, this is confession time. Um, <laughs> Here in but, public, you're telling everybody, Jared, you're on. Hey, for your information, I was in another podcast yesterday, too. <laughs> so there. <laughs> I, I, I did hate plug, you. I, I hate did you. plug our podcast at the end. <laughs> so at the end, I really missed this podcast and decided I wanted to come back yeah, to this to podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> but that just about. made me think like, I just think if we, if we accept that understanding of the Bible, of what the Bible is, that it's not a rule book and it's not this um, inerrant uh, drop down from heaven, scribed by God, uh, yeah, rule book, then it actually changes a lot of other things that, I'm thinking of things like when in the uh, Diana Butler Bass episode with the Wesleyan quadrilateral or Richard War when mm-hmm. he talked about it more as like a three-legged stool or I think a tricycle where a tricycle, yeah. the Bible now gets situated in the larger human experience because you can't just say the Bible is not this rule book that can be, it can be sufficient for everything you would ever need. You just have to read the Bible and that'll take care of everything. If you don't have that, then what else can you lean on? And I think that's where, you know, the the quadrilateral that Diana Butler Bass talked about, which would be, okay, now we have to also take into account tradition and what the history of the church or what we might say the spirit of God through the history of the church is is teaching us, as well as our own experience, as well as reason and using our brain. And all of that now has to work together. Um, so, I appreciated, yeah, it, you know, with summer and thinking about what is revelation, what is the Bible, what is revelation, it also then kind of, if you have a different view of the Bible, then it kind of makes you also have a different view of things like tradition and right, experience. Right. So it all kind of ties together, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, those two ideas really, to me, work together beautifully. A summer's idea of we're interpreting the revelation and this quadrilateral idea because taking tradition seriously you actually see how tradition changes and evolves, Mm -hmm. right? The church does not think the same way today that it did, let's say, 1,700 years ago. The, um, uh, you know, the the reason 
and you know that that changes as well over time as does our experience you know we're we're people today situated in the 21st century and it's not that it's more advanced but it's just different and and we have different issues we have different uh, ways of looking at things we have uh, you know a, a, a modern outlook again that's not a value judgment i think it's just a statement of fact and the gospel has to be interpreted again in different times in different places and that's our sacred responsibility that's what i like about both of those pictures that it's it's putting the burden on us in a good sense to take seriously the revelation in order to interpret it for our time and place well it kind of like as you're saying that it, it problematizes the revelation it makes it something we have yeah. to sit with and we have to stew on and we have to say, hmm, that's confusing. What did, what did our forefathers think about that one? Let's, let's read right. some church history. Let's look at the tradition. Oh, how does my experience might help me understand it? It's whenever it's such a, a packaged, neat thing that's really easy to understand that I think we, we can make a lot of mistakes um, in how we interpret it. But whenever we problematize it, whenever it's like, ooh, okay, now we, we have to interpret this because it's a revelation. It's, a, it's an interpretation of a revelation already, mm-hmm. not, not yes. to mention like uh, our recent um, guest, Barbara Brown Taylor says, and then you have translation yeah. and transmission on top of that. It, it all gets very problematized, which I think in, you know, when we think of Jewish rays of reading and, and Levinson and these guys were on, one of the things I really appreciated was it forces you to slow down mm-hmm. and, by problematize, I mean, it, we have to problem solve. We have to think about it. We have to sit with it. And the Bible itself, you know, when I think of wisdom literature and even the diversity in the text, it kind of forces that as well, where we have to engage and struggle with it. And there's something really nice about that. Yeah, and if once you get over the hump, I think, of accepting what you just said, the Bible really becomes very interesting and you can connect with it, I think, in a deeper level than this detached sort of kept under a glass book that, you know, never changes and, you know, is just meant to be followed. Again, like that rule book metaphor we keep using, but I think it's a very apt metaphor for, I think, how some people struggle with the Bible. So, uh, yeah, the, those were two, you know, really good ideas and important ideas. And I'm thinking of some other people we had on, too, that also talked. I mean, you mentioned roar and his tricycle metaphor and if i remember right the tricycle the front wheel is our experience that's the main wheel that drives everything and i guess scripture is one of the other wheels you need all three but how we this is to me such a commonsensical thing to say now but i mean i might not have said this 20 30 years ago but our experience actually drives how we read the bible and what we get out of it yeah and i remember uh richard roar saying it just like he basically said we should just acknowledge that and admit it because it just mm-hmm. it's just true uh, yeah. we just you know evangelical for me growing up it was we tried to deny that that somehow we came to the text pure without experience mm-hmm. and you know only it really was a sin question like the only way you would distort your reading of the bible with experience is if you had some like egregious sin that kept you from reading it in the plain sense of right. the text right um so yeah, I appreciate those times when, because you know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if you know, but for me, growing up, there were these things that like just intuitively felt a little disingenuous, mm-hmm. but 
you kind of look around and no one else is naming it. So you kind of fake it for a while. Right. And that's kind of one of those moments having Richard Rohr on where he just sort of like, can we just name it? Like our experience, we lead with our experience and we interpret mm. the Bible in that, in light of our experience. And let's not make that a sin or a problem, but just a reality that we have to explore. And if God exists, God can handle that, that we're people. Right. And we don't have to become omniscient or something to, in order to sort of grasp the presence of God in our lives. So, um, yeah, I mean, I th- again, I think those are very liberating concepts, but it also, I mean, the, the way you just expressed what Rohr said, you know, to accept that, you're, you're, you, it's hard to accept that within a paradigm like evangelicalism. And I'm just sort of, again, stating that as something of more of a fact than a, than a value judgment. Because, you know, many, many of the people, as you know, Jared, who listen to us are people who are looking for different ways of thinking about the Bible. And if you go to where Rohr is already situated, you're looking at things from a very different point of view. And it's a different way of thinking about being Christian. Let's like, you know, Brian McLaren would say, a new kind of Christian and a new kind of Christianity. It simply doesn't fit the mold of what many people are used to. And that's, you know, we've talked a lot about the psychological dimension to this. That's, that's a big issue. That's, that's, that's a hard thing to get over, but many of our listeners and, and people who are with us on Patreon and all that sort of stuff, they're already there and they're looking for language as we have new language for talking about this stuff. Yeah, and maybe that's actually a great transition to, you know, we talked for the last, uh, you know, 15 minutes or so about what is the Bible, but I, I'm also interested as in, as we go into season two, we may address this even more, but the question of what do we do with it now? Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, we have a lot of people who uh, know what they don't want to do with the Bible, but that creative act of figuring out now how to find a renewed sense of interest in the Bible or how do I read it differently that's a, it takes a while. Uh, I mean, I think for, for me, it took years to even first have the desire to do that. Uh, and then secondly, have the tools to be able to do that in a new way. So, um, yeah, so maybe let's ask that question, you know, just in the same way that you had a perfect one sentence answer for what is the Bible? (laughs) What, what do we do with it? Oh boy, that's the harder question to answer. And I think you've, you hit the nail on the head, Jared, that, you know, we can sort of talk about what is it and sort of deconstruct what you don't do with it. And again, I think that's part of the territory of those who have come out of, let's say, more restrictive theological or ecclesiastical backgrounds. You want to sort of fight against that. And you want to say what's wrong with that to feel liberated. But then the question eventually will come up, well, what do I do with this? And the way that I would put it now, and stay tuned, this may change a lot over the next 10 minutes or, you know, 10 years or whatever, but I think of the Bible as a book of wisdom, not as a book of rules or a book of information. There is information there. There are even what you might call rules there, but fundamentally, the Bible is a book of wisdom, which is about teaching us by our engagement of it to live well and to uh, live in God's presence and to live well with each other. 
And wisdom is not something that's just handed to you. It's something that you have to experience and it's something that you make stops and starts and, and it's, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's a life of, of, of uh, triumphs and a life of failures, but a life of gaining wisdom and understanding as you go through life, which is a God thing because, you know, God is wisdom and God is, you know, almost personified as wisdom, at least in Second Temple Judaism, not so much in the Old Testament itself, but it becomes a very, very important concept. Like, this is it. This, this is the center of what it means to be connected to this creator. And I think the Bible's primary function is to show us what it means to be wise, which is, means to be connected to the very character of God. That's more than a sentence. It's okay. It was it was pretty good, so we'll allow it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I might put it a little softer. I mean, I really I want to come back to you know you talked about the the Bible isn't the revelation of God, but it is a I don't even know what the word we would use a transcription of the revelation of God or a translation of that. And I want to say something similar in like the wisdom part of the book because. You know, when we think of our guests that we had on, like Naisha Jr. and uh, particularly, um, who was it? Drew Hart. Drew Hart, yeah. Where I think the the Bible can function as a book that can make us wise. It can also function as a way to bring a division or even to justify pretty harmful uh, behaviors when we're talking about race and um, gender and some other things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I'm just, whenever you say it, it is fundamentally a book of wisdom, I, I would kind of want to back off of that a little bit and say, it is a book that I think the Christian church can find really useful for um, the path toward wisdom or something like that. Of course, you know, well, my you know, background that's, that's is in philosophy, I mean. so I want it to right. be as vague as possible. But yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it is... It is the path toward the beginning of possibly maybe a life of wisdom. Um, but yeah, right. so, you know, thinking about that, that, it, yeah, we have to translate it for our times and figuring out how that functions. I almost just think like sometimes we could make it, we could make it a wisdom book almost function like a rule book. And right. I think it continues to resist that. Right. Which I, I definitely don't want to do. And I, I, I I think we're, 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 we overlap pretty significantly in how you're putting it. When I say the Bible is a wisdom book, it's not handing us bits of wisdom. It's actually modeling for us the responsibility of figuring it out. Right. And that's what I, I see that throughout the biblical story, Old and New Testament, pretty clearly. And I think that's the invitation. I think the Bible invites us to take the responsibility to be mature people. Right. And to, to take that responsibility of discerning and trying to understand what does it mean to believe in this God and to believe in this Jesus here and now? What does that look like? What does it look like when God shows up now? Because God is showing up through us. So, what, what do we, see, that's where wisdom, wisdom is very practical. What, what does it mean for this God to show up now through us that is fundamentally a wisdom question it's not it's not a belief question mm. it's not a doctrine question and again i'm not against belief or against doctrine but that's see the bible is not fundamentally about believing the bible is not fundamentally about doctrine the bible is fundamentally about wisdom and 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 that wisdom takes 
it almost takes the control out of our hands in a sense because it's, it's not like this text you master and once you know it all, you've got it. That's just the beginning. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you know, in some of our background, I would say where that was problematic was sort of the belief that if you constructed the sandcastle just right, you could get it right. And then the goal was to like defend against anyone getting near your sandcastle mm-hmm. instead <laughs> of like, because if you, if you mess with it, you could topple this whole thing down right. instead of saying that <laughs> fortress wasn't really the point. It's about walking the journey. It's not about building anything necessarily. And if you uh, do build it, you have to build it far enough from the water. So it never touches anything. So right. it's, just, it's just this artificial, uh, you know, structure to it. So, how, how would that, and, and this is just a curious question, as you, I'm thinking you've wrestled with this a little bit more than I have probably of the Bible, more as a wisdom book rather than a belief book, but the first thing that jumped into my head was something like, uh, you know, the Gospel of John, where late in the book, he sort of lays it out there, I think in chapter 20, saying, I've written this so that you might believe. Um, like, this is the mm-hmm. purpose of why I'm writing it, so that you can believe. And would, is that a, how does that fit with this idea? Is it the New Testament swings a little more toward belief than say the Hebrew Bible would, or does belief mean something a little different maybe in that context than just a mental assent to a correct idea? Well, maybe all those things. I mean, when I say, you know, the Bible's fundamentally about wisdom, I don't mean exclusively about wisdom. It does talk about other kinds of things, right. but, but even there, you know, I think the word belief there, like we see most of the time in the New Testament is, an active life of trusting God, not an intellectual assent to something. And when you're talking about a life of trusting God, you're smack dab in the middle of wisdom, right? Not in not in the world of doctrine or just like an intellectual belief. But I do think you know, since you brought it up, Jared, I, I do think that this is one reason why we need the Old Testament theologically because it does lay some of these things out in a little bit more depth than the New Testament does because just the nature of the animal of the New Testament, it's, it's written over a fairly constricted period of time, let's say roughly about maybe 50 years or even, or even less, and it's more triumphal and we're not going to be here much longer because things are going to end and Jesus is going to come back. That's most New Testament writers thought of an imminent parousia, as they call it, an imminent return of, of Jesus. And so, you know, the act of living a long life and going old and, and living a life of wisdom uh, and, and mastering life, so to speak, and, and being able to navigate the ups and downs. You know, in the Old Testament, you have hundreds and hundreds of years of people thinking about what does it mean to be an Israelite? Because there's no second coming. You know, there's no, there's, there's no triumphal moment uh, you know, during the Old Testament, except for these, you know, long distance eschatological moments. But in the New Testament, it's more like everything's eschatological. Everything's coming to an end soon. So the emphasis is different, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I expect the New Testament maybe to have different angles on it, you know, about, um, you know, not, not wavering in unbelief like James puts it, you know, even though that's a wisdom book itself. Uh, you know, I don't think that cancels out some of the emphasis of wisdom that we see so dominant, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Right. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. So what other things can we say about what we do with the Bible? Well, you brought up... Nisha Jr. and Drew Hart, for example, on womanist interpretation and then race in the Bible. And I remember especially Drew, really, he sort of um, helped us understand how what we need is creative readings of the Bible that help marginalized peoples. And what do you do with the Bible? Well, that's one thing that we do. It's, it's, it's appropriating the text and speaking truth through the text, even by accenting stories that might be buried and not used very often or looking at things from a different angle, from a fresh angle. And I mean, that, that's a lot of what's behind, you know, feminist interpretation and, and, and uh, you know, other, other types of interpretation that try to, uh, and, and I think as needed uh, or successful in putting sort of, if I could put it this way, white male theology in its place where, you know, that's sort of normal and all these other things are just sort of like, you know, not taking the text seriously or, or making things up in the text with biases and, and that sort of thing. But all interpretive stances have biases. All interpretive stances come from a particular angle. And I think what Drew Hart is reminding us of is how we have that responsibility too, to all of us have to be creative in engaging the text. And so when you see people who are marginalized or are harmed by the Christian faith or by the use of scripture, our responsibility is to go back to it and to look at it to see what can be mined out of it that helps people. Right. Yeah. Another way of saying that for me is, unfortunately, there's no default way of reading the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. And but but I think the really unfortunate thing is over the last at uh, least few hundred years we've assumed that the default way of reading the Bible is the white male mm-hmm. maybe even Americanized way of reading the Bible, mm-hmm. and that we're not taking into account how uh, how blind we are to sort of our own biases with that. And I think one that pointed out that really well for me was Megan DeFranza. Yes talking about intersex and the believer in the Bible and just these texts that I really had not paid much attention to and how she animated them now in light of uh, intersex peoples, intersex believers, and and even maybe how it relates to transgender um, people as well. And yeah, that was just one like of the Like the eunuch in Matthew right. or in the book of Acts, right? Yeah, and and how, you know, we it's it's hard to... You know, I think what I wanted to name is we can't, it's not really our fault. We, we don't want to have a lot of value judgment placed on the fact that we read the Bible in certain ways in the sense that it just how many different ways can you approach the text kind of in one lifetime? It's more of being open to it when it comes your way and just saying, yeah, I would have never, would have never thought of that. I would have never picked up on that. Um, 
which also maybe is is a reason why getting out and and rubbing shoulders with and having good conversations with Christians who aren't like you, yeah, you know, there's something really important there. As we're trying to do on this podcast, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I I think of of Megan and also Matthew Vines and you know God and the uh, and the gay Christian, but also here with with. Um, the Bible and the Gay Christian, which I think was the title of our podcast, is looking at texts that are not always front and center in some discussions and looking at other texts and saying, you know what, there are other actually very legitimate and defensible readings of some of these texts that are not part of, let's say, the dominant culture, but are still uh, not just viable or possible readings, but sometimes very strong readings and, and, and ones that can be defended. And you know, when you get into that, it gets a little bit messy because you want the Bible to be clear. But the fact of the matter is that, that it's, it's not always clear and it doesn't always tell you what to do. And I continue to think by listening to some of these guests that we've had, like Matthew Vines and Megan DeFranz and Drew Hart and Aisha Jr. and a bunch of others, that, uh, you know, that's something that's good about the Bible, that it's actually, it resists a monolithic interpretation it, by its nature it invites different interpretations because of its ambiguities, because of its antiquity. You know, it's not speaking our language and it's not answering our questions. So when we go to it with our questions, we have to be aware of the fact that it may not be prepared to answer those questions specifically. We have to do some creative theological thinking. It's never just about reading the Bible. It's about the theology that's surrounding that. And if that theology is wise and connected with people and is really focused on loving God and loving your neighbor, you know, I think something good could come out of that. Well, I, I think that's an important thing when we talk about, you know, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? Well, if the Bible isn't this rule book that is just plainly, that can be plainly read by anybody and everything is just really clear if you read it, it often the question I get is sort of like, well, then what is the proper lens through which we read it? Because if we're always reading it through a lens, what's the proper way? And I think that's tied to what we do with it. And you mentioned a few times that finding readings that cause no harm. And even more than that, it just reminded me of, of St. Augustine in his book on Christian doctrine, I think it is, where he has this great quote where he says that if anyone thinks that they understand the scriptures, but they put up such an interpretation that doesn't tend to build up love of God and love of neighbor actually doesn't understand them as they should. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was kind of St. Augustine, which is 400. This isn't like a liberal or progressive idea in the modern sense, but uh, you know, 1600 years ago, St. Augustine basically says, yeah, we understand you could read the Bible in a lot of different ways. So how do we know when we hit the right one? And already St. Augustine's saying, well, here's a good one. If it doesn't build up your love of God or your neighbor, it's probably not the right one. And, and he lived at a time when it was understood and even celebrated that the Bible is, quote, not clear. It, right. it is open to different interpretations and, and you have to struggle with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, I don't know who it was, you may know your patristics better than me, but you know, at that time back then, it was, uh, I remember one of them saying that the literal interpretation or the, the one on the face of things is the least interesting. Yeah. It, it's sort of the least mature one. 
it's origin origin yeah yeah third century yeah yeah so yeah it's it's not only a yeah i mean if you have to settle for that, that i guess that's okay <laughs> right yeah, seriously that that's sort of the attitude but there's like that's not where god is actually doing most of the talking it's 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 in those deeper levels that are not bound to things like the original meaning of an author or or the contextual sense. Of course, a lot of the church rebelled against that, and not many people are sort of, quote, allegorizers nowadays, but the, the principle is still an important one, and somebody had to say it, you know, that the heart of it is not just the surface meaning of words on a page in front of you. It's, it's, it's actually the meaning you give to those words. That's, that's really what makes this sing, and I, and I think that can be frightening to some people, but you know, I found it to be very, very liberating. It's not just the words, it's how we understand the words that make this authoritative scripture for us. Right, and and something you mentioned quite a bit throughout this season uh, is that we, well, how, would you, how did you put it? When we talk about uh, the, the, the Bible itself, actually models this for us. And I think that was an important mm-hmm. point you kept making is it's not like we're adding something onto the text and saying, well, that's clear. And it just happens to be that we've kind of lost that. And so now we have to make up new meanings. It's no, we find it in the text that they're reinterpreting older traditions. And we can see that whether that's the two creation stories or whether that's how Chronicles reinterprets the King's narrative or, you know, a lot of John Levinson's work who we had on, where he does that in just really interesting ways. I remember he does this section on child sacrifice mm. where it's like this interpretation in the text, this this development in the text on this topic. And so you, you the bottle itself models it. And that's important to name too, I think, for those who want to say, well, there you know, interpretation is what we do after the Bible, and then the Bible is this mm-hmm. non interpretive thing. Um, that's just not true. Yeah, and, and what is the New Testament if not a tectonic rethinking of of a lot of cherished categories? And this is why Paul had a hard sell. You know, he, he had to try to sell to, uh, you know, the Mediterranean world that this Jewish God is also for Gentiles every bit as much as this God is for Jews. And you know, it's not, and, and A.J. Uh, Levine, for example, will always remind us, and correctly so, that the Old Testament is not, quote, against Gentiles. But there was still a notion in Second Temple Judaism that there was some sort of a conversion that happens when Gentiles become Jews. And when, they, when they're all in with the Jewish family, and one of those things is circumcision, another one is, is really adopting the laws of Judaism and basically doing the best you can. But, you know, with, with Paul, the, the, you know, dietary restrictions and circumcision are marginalized and they're decentered. They're not those things that are central to what it means to be part of the family of Abraham. And that's a pretty, um, that's a significant moment, I think, you know, in, 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 um, in the history of Judaism, this Christian movement that started in uh, you know, in the first century. And, you know, we have to remember that, that within our own Bible, the whole gospel depends on a reinterpretation of Israel's story. Without that, you don't have the gospel. Right. Yeah, And, and I that's think a, scary for people. Yeah. I think a lot of traditions do a disservice by trying to smooth all that over. You know, whenever it's uh, Matthew quotes Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And 
we look at that and, and, you know, for me, I would have never questioned it. It's like, well, of course, Hosea was talking about Jesus mm-hmm. and that's really clear. Well, do it just a little bit of scratching the surface of that. Yeah. And you realize Hosea is not talking about Jesus, but talking about Israel. And so wait, now how does Matthew get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he gets there, this creative rereading, this reinterpretation um, in light of this experience to kind of come back full circle, the revelation of God, the experience that the author of the community had of Jesus. We have to make sense of this somehow. You, you miss the, you miss the theology if you miss this drama, so to speak, that is happening in the New Testament and then, you know, within the Old Testament and then moving to the New Testament period. And that's, you know, you, you really do miss what they're saying when you flatten it out and say it all, everybody's sort of on the same page. You know, like the Old Testament, you know, Hosea is clearly predicting Jesus. That sort of flattens it out. And, but by saying, well, he's clearly not. In fact, Matthew's doing something weird with this passage. Okay, well, let's talk about the weirdness. Let, like Richard Rohr, let's name it for what it is. Call it weird. And now let's try to dig into the writer's theology a bit. And, you know, that takes a lot of work. And it can be a little bit unsettling and uncomfortable. But that's, that's where the payoff is is really looking at this stuff. And, and I, you know, I can't help but think you mentioned Augustine and I threw Origen in there. So, you know, these early church people, they, they were much more on board with that notion than, let's say, much of the Protestant Reformation tradition that we're a part of that has, you know, maybe been less comfortable with multiplicity of meanings. You don't have fourfold meaning of scripture like you have in the medieval period, like a moral meaning, a literal meaning, uh, uh, then a, like a Christological meaning and sort of what you might call an eschatological meaning. Where's all this going? Where's the future? Uh, it sort of was flattened out to one way of looking at it, more or less a historical way. And I think we miss something of, of, the, of the very nature of the Bible itself. And maybe this is sort of summing up the point here. We know what is the Bible and what do we do with it? answering one question right away brings you to the other. You know, it's, it's like mm-hmm. when you look at how people have understood the Bible, including within the Bible itself, it, it can't help but force you to look at, well, what is the Bible then? You know, if, if the church has used it in such diverse ways, and even within the Bible itself, if it, is, if it exhibits such diversity, what is the Bible? And, and what do we do with it? And, you know, my answer to the second question now gets a little bit easier. What do we do with it? Will we follow that pattern in a godly, humble way? What do we, how should we be thinking about God now, given our circumstances and our place and time in history? Right. And I think that, yeah, that humility is so important because, you know, uh, the flip side of the certainty, the nice thing about having it all buttoned up is you don't really need humility because it's there. It's, you're pretty certain about it. And so, again, like, I think there's multiple instances we can point to in the Bible that, that uh, lifts up humility as a good thing. And it's almost like the Bible itself is humbling us. Uh, every time you sort of try to put your finger on it, it sort of escapes the grasp. And, um, and I think that also points to this dynamic way of reading the Bible that it's not meant to just be words on a page, but it's mm-hmm. meant to cause a struggle. And, you know, I would just say one of the things that kept coming back is I love the, um, you know, a lot of our Jewish guests and their ability to just name, yeah, it's part of the struggle. The struggle is the point. 
And, you know, for a lot of our listeners, I think the struggle brought a lot of pain and it brings a lot of isolation and alienation because the church isn't set up for that. Where for Jewish communities, it is, that is the point and they get that. So it can be actually a joyful time to debate and argue because you're not going to be alienated from your community and you're not going to be shamed for having different interpretations, but it is part of the process. And I just, I really that took that away from this season and want to continue to encourage the communities I'm part of to, Mm -hmm. you know, adopt that posture. Right. Well, and with that, Jared, we could talk all night about this. We could. We had like 25 guests, you know that? Something like that. I know. We were, we just spent a long, we just name dropped a lot in this episode. I know, but we didn't name drop everybody. I know, but it felt really good to name drop because it was appropriate. That's true. That's we true. Are, you know, it was good. We got it all out in one episode. I don't think we name dropped it all in the other episodes. So. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Excellent. Any final, do you have any final words for Get us? ready for season two. Get ready. How, how might one get ready for season two, Pete? Hmm. Fast. <laughs> no, is, just go have fun. I was expecting. Go have fun. Just yep. go be a person, and then we'll see you when season two begins, which is, do we have a start date for that yet, Jared? We do. People want to know. We do. I, I, I would say it, let's keep it broad and say end of January, beginning of February. Right. It's around that time. Yep. Right. So We got to take a break. This is hard work. It is. It's Asking fun work, but it's hard work. I know. And we've got a real exciting lineup we have a fair amount of season two planned already we do yeah i I think that's really amazing but we're not going to tell anybody who our guests are no maybe if you maybe if a few folks would want to join patreon i think we could probably sneak some looks of season two in the in the coming weeks um so with that just another plug for this community of faith which uh, you know um i've got about a few hundred people um, now joining the Patreon community, having these discussions on the Slack group. Um, there's a lot of great discussions happening there. Uh, everything from but the Bible and violence, the being able to teach our children the Bible. Um, there's even one now on giving feedback about the podcast. I don't mm-hmm. like. I don't read that one. I just I ignore that one completely. Yeah. I don't need feedback. Exactly. Yeah. Who needs feedback? Yeah. But just uh, <laughs> just encourage you to Jesus check that didn't out. take feedback. <laughs> I don't think he did. I, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so check that out. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in the meantime, I think while you're waiting, go check out Patreon, join the conversation, and we'll see you in a month or so. Yeah, sounds good. See you later. Righty, folks. Thanks for everything. See ya. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.